The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who didst instruct the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Ghost, grant us by that same Spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in its consolation. Through Christ our Lord, Amen. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm Thomas Nagley. I'm here with Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest for the Society of St. Pius V. And he serves as the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you this evening? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And yourself? Just the same, Father. It's good to see you. Yes, course. you too. Back for another week, Father. Uh, any prayer requests tonight? Always, Tom. Please uh, continue to pray for Paul Riley. And his family, if you would, please continue your prayers for Cheryl Johnson. Cheryl's doing well after uh, that uh, aneurysm she suffered, and it makes a remarkable recovery, and so, uh, which she attributes to prayer. And so uh, we thank you for all those who pray for her. And we uh, pray for Pat Tootie, pray for uh, so many, many other good souls, uh, Jim Sank and Dr. Hoprichter and... Uh, you know, the, there's, there's quite a list, I and mean, God knows every single person on that list. So uh, please keep all in your prayers. Uh, I know um, that he will, you know, bless all of them because of your prayer, and bless you for praying too. Pray for our country, of course. Our country is in serious condition right now, and beset on every side. And of course, above all, pray for the church, because the church is uh, certainly... Um, as it is to be found in the dreams of St. John Bosco, right, when he found the church as a great ship that was attacked from every side, right, mm -hmm. um, and the great storm. So we have to pray for the, the church also. Okay. Um, we do that, you know, there's a, there are special orations in the Missal uh, praying uh, for the church, and uh, um, so this is something we we have to keep in mind in our daily prayers to pray in accord with the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. Very good. Okay, well, Father, we have uh, some great viewer email uh, for tonight, also a couple of current events that we wanted to uh, discuss, but I um, have a list of uh, great questions before me, Father, so I'd like to uh, ask some of these of you. Uh, the first question, a viewer wrote in and asked the Father, uh, could you explain why in the penitential season of Advent, which is right around the corner, the liturgy retains the Alleluia, at least on Sundays, and does not have a tract. Well, the Le Advent season is not a penitential season in the same sense that the, Ad the Lenten season is. Um, the the uh, Lenten season is a period of fast and abstinence, as you know, uh, throughout the time um, of that, that whole period. And... Um, from Ash Wednesday all the way till Holy Saturday. 
It is truly a Lenten, a penitential season. The hymns sung during that time and all the prayers in the sacred liturgy reflect that. Um, except for Sundays. Sundays are never penitential because they're always miniature Easter's, right? Um, but um, you will find that in Advent, the, uh, the Alleluia does continue. And uh, there is no tract, as you'd find during the Lenten season, because um, Advent is more of a time of anticipation, uh, reliving in a very brief way the expectation of the coming of the Messiah. Um, and we put ourselves in the place of the, of the faithful souls of old, of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? Um, and uh, the patriarchs and the prophets of old, all who had faith and um, loved the, the coming Redeemer, even before he came. Uh, they had faith in him, they put their hope in him, and they loved him enough to obey. Uh, obey what God the Father prescribed for the um, anticipation and the preparation for the coming of the Redeemer. And so we relive those, those times. So uh, it is one thing to celebrate the, uh, the weeks before Lent, which takes us to the foot of the cross and the sacrificial death upon, of our Lord upon the cross. And the entire weight of our sins is pressing down upon him in the Garden of Gethsemane. We, we are living through that. And it's a different uh, thing to be reliving um, not the life of our Lord, in a sense, during that time, as we do during Lent. We, we um, relive with our Lord and walk with our Lord during that time of conflict um, as he is... Uh, being conspired against, being accused of, uh, of crimes, even being possessed, as our Lord is being uh, then uh, taken into custody, as our Lord is being tortured, and finally our Lord is being crucified. We live, we live that with our Lord, and that has a very, very definite character for that time, for that reason. And it's a very different thing from reliving, as it were, the uh, the period of time before Christ came with the, at that time, chosen people, and to relive their anticipation of the coming of the Savior. It's a very different, mm -hmm. different idea. So uh, that's why um, that expectation that, of hope that you find expressed in the prophets uh, translates itself into this continued Alleluia uh, in the liturgy before before the nativity of our Lord. Yeah, very good. That's great. Thank you, Father. Um, another viewer asked, Father, if you would be able to refute the claim made by some Protestants that our Lord was not actually born on December 25th. Well, uh, you know, Protestants just decide to uh, pick the opposite stance of whatever the Catholics take, you know. So they, they feel an obligation uh, just to protest on the basis of what Catholics do, and they automatically, uh, reflexively uh, take the opposite position. Um, you know, if you talk to a, an actual believing Protestant, he might tell you, yes, he believes in the Blessed Trinity, yes, he believes in the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, and yes, he believes that the Divine Son of God became man and died on the cross for us, 
if you asked him to make the sign of the cross, he would adamantly refuse because that's what Catholics do. And you say, but that's an ancient sign of belief in the very things you claim to believe in. And, but because Catholics do it, they, they just um, irrationally reject it. You know? um, and it, it's, it's out of pure prejudice. Just uh, Prejudice actually takes precedence over their faith, or what they claim is their faith. So, um, in any case, so it is with the choosing of December 25th as the birth of our Lord. Now, that date, December 25th, was calculated by the Church uh, using certain ancient markers. Um, one of them has to do with even with, with Zachary. Um, Zachary, who is the father of St. John the Baptist, he was functioning as the high priest and at a certain time. Okay? And um, that time of year was known. Um, he was of the, of the um, uh, family of Abdias, and that family had a set time to function, uh, have a family member function as the high priest at that time. Um, and so, um, so it was that calculating from that time and the, uh, the fact that the angel Gabriel came to the Blessed Mother, and at that visitation of St. Gabriel, the, the Christ child was conceived. And that was six months, as the angel Gabriel told Mary, after John the Baptist had been conceived. Right? Uh, the angel Gabriel told the Blessed Mother that it is now the sixth months, sixth month of her kinswoman, Elizabeth. And uh, that kinswoman, Elizabeth, was carrying St. John the Baptist. So figuring that our Lord was conceived six months after John the Baptist was conceived, and that that took place with the message of the angel uh, Raphael, or was it Gabriel, Gabriel I'm Gabriel. sorry, to, uh, to Zachary in the Holy of Holies in the temple, uh, they calculate from knowing when Zachary was actually fulfilling the responsibilities, six months forward for the conception of our Lord, and then nine months forward from that moment until his birth. So uh, there is a rational, uh, intelligent, historical foundation for the Catholic belief in December 25th as the birthday of our Lord. And, um, but, uh, and it is, is much more, shall we say, scientific than merely saying, well, Catholics say that, so I, I immediately, automatically reject it for that reason. Mm -hmm. It can be any other date but that. <laughs> That's the one date it can't be. So, anyway, but if you if you look that up, I think in the Catholic Encyclopedia, in fact, there is some treatment of that question of the dating of Christmas, and I I think you'll find uh, a, a fuller explanation of what I just gave you. Okay, very good. The point is that there are some historical markers leading the Church to December twenty fifth as the date. Yep. Okay, uh, Father, we actually had a, a couple of questions about. Uh, in regards to the poor souls in purgatory, we're still in the month of November dedicated to the poor souls. I have just mm -hmm. a couple of days of that month left, but uh, one of our viewers wanted to know if a person needs to be in the state of grace to obtain indulgences for the souls in purgatory. One needs to be in the state of grace basically to accomplish uh, any good, spiritual good for another. I mean, we can, somebody in the, in the state of mortal sin can, can actually give a, uh, a good example to another person by being patient 
at a time, um, or by being generous, let's say, to someone in need. And that would set a good example for another soul. But as far as the internal graces that come from prayer and so on, the soul that is in the state of mortal sin uh, cannot obtain graces that way for other souls, let's say, in, in their family or their, among their acquaintances, because they are in the state of mortal sin themselves, and they are not at peace with God. They are not in a state to go to God, say, give this and give this grace and give this grace to others because I'm praying for it. Rather, what they pray for uh, actually redounds to them, and it makes their prayers all the more important because the, the, the most important thing they have to do is to return to the state of grace. The most important soul they're responsible for is their own. That's their first responsibility. So they may pray for others, but in praying for others, they're, they're, actually, uh, tr they're actually moving things forward for their own return to the state of grace. And that's the benefit of their prayers at that time. It's focused on having them return to the state of God's grace. So I think you'll find, and uh, you know, if you find something other than this, I wish you would tell us that uh, in in line with that, a person does have to be in the state of grace to gain, for example, an indulgence. Is there any way the indulgence could be <coughs> retroactively applied somehow, where they perform the prescribed works and then they um, receive the, the sacrament of penance and after they, uh, I don't. I've, I'm not, don't, never okay. heard of that. I've never heard of it happening. Yeah. I can't say it, it can't, but I would have to say uh, I don't think so. Okay, very good. <laughs> um, another question, Father. Do deceased uh, family members, um, particularly those in uh, purgatory, do they have knowledge of events concerning their living relatives? Yes, we've talked about that somewhat before. But, uh, uh, if, if a soul was in, in the beatific vision of God in heaven, right? The soul sees, as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, face to face, then I shall know even as I am known. And there St. Paul is talking about knowing God. <clears throat> then we would see in God what is in the divine mind, and in the divine mind are ourselves. I mean, God holds us, as St. Paul says, in him we, we live, we work, we, we act, we are, right? We live, we move, we are in the mind of God. It is his infinitely powerful, infinitely good will that has willed us into existence and sustains our existence. And the souls in heaven can actually see that in God's mind. So they, they actually see creation in a very different way than they see it when they're on earth. Uh, here we have to look at it on creation through our eyes, and uh, you know, sight is a material thing, right? D relying on uh, electromagnetic radiation and uh, affecting the optic nerve and you know, the cells in the brain and so on and so forth. We translate and that into vision and um, make sense out of it. Gradually, our brains make sense out of what we're seeing, and. Um, and same with our hearing. I mean, uh, what we see and we hear, we see and hear through the senses, and that's very limited here. Even the most, uh, let's say, intimate relationship we have with anybody here on earth, um, 
is still very remote because that relationship has to be formed uh, through what we see and we hear, our senses, we get to know the other person, we interpret their words, we interpret their actions, we think we know them, but we can't see their souls. Um, and in heaven now, that's changed. Because in heaven, we will see our loved ones more as, as their own guardian angels see them. And our guardian angels here on earth uh, see us first in, in our souls. They see our souls first. And they see our bodies as connected, as united with our souls. So our spirits, our souls, are the first thing the guardian angel sees directly and immediately, spirit to spirit. And uh, everything else, you know, connected with our souls, our bodies, everything, the guardian angel sees through the medium, as it were, of the soul. In heaven, the same. The souls in heaven, in the beatific vision, see who we are, really, soul first, as it were. And, um, but they, um, that knowledge is a knowledge which is much more complete, much more penetrating, because... In a sense, they see with the vision of God, not infinitely perfectly, of course, but they do see. They share in that vision of God. And um, they also share in the love of God in a, in a surpassing way, far surpassing anything here on earth. So um, they not only know more intimately their loved ones here on earth, but they love them even more, more powerfully than they ever could here on earth. Um, so, yes, they, they do have a knowledge. And this helps to explain why we as Catholics have what many would consider to be kind of an oddity. Nobody outside of Catholics, people do not understand how it is that a Catholic can, at a moment's notice, or even without a moment's notice, invoke the help of a saint. In any given moment, invoke the, the help of a saint, as though the saint actually hears and can respond. And we believe absolutely, that they do hear and they do respond. How can we have that immediate contact with a saint in heaven, in the beatific vision, but for the fact that we are confident that saint sees God and in God sees us and knows that we are, without any hesitation at all, without any lapse of time, without any, any you know, medium to go through, uh, that that connection is there, as it were, and it's immediate. Uh, and the saint does have the power to respond because we read in the book of the Apocalypse that the saints are constantly in prayer and glorifying and praising God, mm. and thanking Him. So for the saint to respond by including our intention and our welfare because we ask for it in that prayer, it's... Um, it's a very powerful thing, and uh, the immediacy of it is, uh, to us, really astounding when we think about it. what we do as Catholics when we invoke the help of a saint in heaven and what we're professing to believe by invoking that saint, that that saint knows, hears, sees, cares, and is in the presence of God immediately to, to respond to that, that request. What, what uh, Father, what though about the souls in purgatory, even the souls in hell, do they have any, do we know if they have any knowledge? Of <clears throat> Only what God permits them to know. Okay. 
you know, the souls in purgatory don't have a beatific vision to go by, but they, they can know. Um, for example, a soul in purgatory can know that someone on earth is praying for that soul, because the, the soul in purgatory is actually benefiting from those prayers. Now, does it mean the soul knows who is actually praying for them? We don't know that. But certainly they do experience an alleviation of the purifying fires of purgatory. Yeah. Right? They do experience a progress toward the beatific vision uh, because of the prayers of people here on earth. Uh, I don't know that they necessarily know who unless God himself makes it known to them. But God can. Sure. Um, there have been plenty of instances of souls in purgatory coming to earth, visiting their loved ones. For example, religious sisters who passed away in convents come back and implore their fellow sisters or fellow monks and brothers for prayers. There are plenty of instances like that that are very well recorded in the history of the church, that souls have come from purgatory by a special relief of God to request prayers. Um, so, yes, souls in, in purgatory can know, um, but the general consensus, I believe, is that they know what God enlightens them to know. Mm -hmm. They just okay. don't, don't automatically know in purgatory as they would in heaven. Yeah, okay, that's fascinating. Thank you. Okay, Father, the next um, question we had a viewer ask, what is the difference between repeating the Jesus prayer uh, so-called Jesus prayer that we referenced on our recent program. What is the difference between repeating that and repeating the Hail Mary and the Rosary? Well, again, the Jesus prayer, as they say, historically, I think, took on more of a mantra yeah. uh, thing, where it's repeated and repeated and repeated, almost mindlessly, just for the sound of the prayer, without real reflection on the meaning, right? We would discourage people from praying the Hail Mary that way. If people just parrot-like repeated the Hail Mary and over and over again um, without any real devotion, we would consider that to be rather insulting uh, to God. And so, I mean, I mean, obviously people are distracted when they pray. It's, it's part of our nature, unfortunately. Our fallen nature is very weak as far as our attentiveness. But if somebody just says, well, I'm going to just rapidly repeat a hundred times the Hail Mary. <clears throat> uh, and just for the sake of, of mechanically saying it, we would say, well, this is kind of disrespectful just to race through that and without having any intention to really consider the meaning of the words. And I would say the same if, if the, the so-called Jesus prayer, you know, use the expression of the Jesus prayer, but I understand that in, uh, over time, it has morphed from one prayer to another, right? Um, I mean, e even saying what we say at the beginning of the Divine Office, Deus in auditorium mentende, Domine in adivandum festina, right? That's one of the Jesus prayers that they were saying. Uh, o Lord, come to my assistance. O Lord, make haste to help me, right? That's a prayer, and it's a very beautiful prayer, right, from the sacred scripture. But one can turn it into kind of a, a, well, again, a mindless mantra just by repeating it over and over again without any thought to the meaning of it. Mm. Now, if one were to pray it, really pray it, lift his mind and his heart to God in praying that, <clears throat> that's a wonderful thing. And it would be a good thing, okay? 
But unfortunately, um, the, the thing, whatever, the practice known as the Jesus prayer doesn't necessarily presume that one is actually praying, raising his mind and heart to God, but he's just saying over and over again the, these words, this formula. And uh, without the prayer and the raising the mind and heart to God, it really becomes kind of an empty formula, which is, I think, an abuse, you know, clearly. That seems to be the exact opposite almost of the rosary, where the Hail Mary, I've heard it described almost as like background music for the uh, meditation, that we mm. are, meditation on the mysteries of the life of our Lord that we're actually meditating on, or actually praying those rosaries. The Hail Mary is just kind of um, like almost like a background music, an aid for that. Well, it is. It is a background music, and it's supposed to be an aid to the meditation. Without the meditation, there's no rosary. Yeah. You know, the rosary is not just a bunch of Hail Marys strung together, punctuated by Our Fathers and Glory Bees. That's um, that's not the rosary. The rosary is meditating on the missionary, mysteries of the life of our Lord. Yeah. And that is why the Hail Mary is perfect for that, because... It's where our Lord's life starts, right, at the uh, at the incarnation, and uh, Our Lady's uh, willingness to completely surrender her entire life uh, to the service of God by becoming the mother of the Savior, and uh, she um, she sets the the tone for the whole Rosary in that her willingness to. Uh, unite her life with the life of Christ on earth. This is what the rosary is meant to do. So the rosary, the Hail Mary, is a perfect prayer uh, to accompany all of those meditations, uh, as Our Lady herself accompanied our Lord through his life. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, <clears throat> with regard to the so-called Jesus prayer, um, there's a, a th certain theology behind it, as you know. And one of our... Um, one of our uh, listeners actually uh, gave us a little bit more background on that theology. And I talked about the theosis problem, where supposedly someone would, by saying this over and over again, would come to theosis, uh, meaning he would kind of experience uh, the divine light, the uncreated light and, uh, of God, the uncreated light, light of God. And as we know, I mean, um, the uncreated light would be God himself, right? And uh, outside of God, everything else is created, right? Mm -hmm. If it's uncreated light, it has to be the divine light. It has to be God himself. Um, but um, again, theologically, you know, in the East, there were distinctions that were made that were rather mystical and rather unclear. Um, and um, that's where a lot of heresies came from, the lack of clarity in the Greek, uh, in the Greek thought, um, and some of it due to the Greek language because of the impreciseness of the ancient language with words that had very flexible meanings. Um, but, um, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas does uh, address the question. It says, that, well, that not as far as God goes, uh, quad deum, but quad nos, regard to us, yes, we can make a distinction between the, the light of God and God himself. We make that distinction, but it's an artificial distinction in our own minds. 
we make for our own convenience. But in reality, there can be no distinction between God himself and the uncreated light of God. In reality, that's how it is. So even there, one has to be wary of the theology behind that. Um, you know, we, we have the Greek fathers of the church, and they spoke so eloquently and so beautifully, but not all Greek thought is quite as precise as the Greek fathers, the ancient fathers of the church. And so some of the mystics um, who followed um, were, shall we say, a little bit loose in their terminology. So, you know, you have to look at it very carefully. St. Thomas Aquinas is an excellent reference to our finding that precision of thought Mm -hmm. um, because when you're imprecise in theology, uh, when you, you can begin to um, express heresies that you didn't necessarily foresee <laughs> just by your imprecision. Yeah. This was part of the problem in the early days of the Greek church, that they had to precise their words very, very carefully um, so as not to give the wrong, wrong understanding of each other. So, this is what I think we're dealing with here, actually. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, I think uh, there is a big difference between what the church teaches us about praying the rosary and reciting the Hail Mary, repeating the Hail Marys, yeah. and what has come down to us under the, the name, even the vague name of the Jesus prayer. Right. Okay. All right. Um, moving on, Father, a viewer asked, uh, does traditional Catholic teaching suggest that alcoholism is primarily a disease? Or is it uh, rather a moral failing? He says it seems that the modern disease model is seeking to make excuses for moral failings. Well, it certainly can be. You know, these days, you know, they talk about somebody making a mistake. Oh, you know, you can't just blame somebody for making a mistake. But what they did was something criminal. <laughs> you know, it was a, a moral uh, uh, failing, <laughs> as our writer says here. It wasn't just a mistake; it was a bad decision. You know. And it was, a, but it was a decision made with malice of forethought. He knew what he was deciding, so there was no mistake involved. Um, but um, so one can use the idea of a disease as an excuse. Um, true. Um, as far as the traditional Catholic teaching, I don't know if there really is a traditional Catholic teaching uh, whether or not alcoholism is a moral failure or a disease one or the other, excluding, um, it, it could well be that it could be classified as both a disease and a moral failing. Why do I say that? Well, because one who um, is prone to, there are those who are prone to alcoholism, okay? Um, those are those who are more prone to alcoholism than others, perhaps, because um, they're more affected by the alcohol, okay? Um, Physically, if it's a physiological, uh, if it's a uh, morphological or a matter of metabolism, um, yes, there can be some who are more affected by the alcohol, adversely affected, and that makes them more prone to it, perhaps. But uh, that doesn't really mean that they're necessarily going to be alcoholics, right? It's not as though it's some kind of a microbe that they catch, you know, that infects them. Um, I mean, every single one of us has weaknesses, and um, the weaknesses of one might not be as acute 
weaknesses as others. You know, that's just the way it is. Some are more prone to one thing and some are more prone to others. <laughs> the thing is, all of us have weaknesses. And so we just have to guard ourselves against them. We don't call all of our weaknesses diseases, although the, the left might, or the liberals might find it convenient. <clears throat> um, we call them weaknesses and we have to overcome them with strengths or what we call virtues, right? So um, the same is true with somebody who falls into alcoholism. Um, somewhere along the line, there are choices that have to be made. And whether he realizes that for, for him or her, alcohol is poison, affects them very badly, and is very deleterious to their life and very injurious to the people they love. And so they have to make a decision, saying, well, I'm going to give that up. I'm going to stop this. And they decide not to give it up. They're attached to it for whatever reason. And no matter what damage it's doing to them or others, Maybe they are in denial and they refuse to face it. But the fact is, they choose this evil, okay? The evil result of alcohol. And so um, it's a choice they make. That's a moral failure, right? I mean, look, no matter how much you may call it a disease, the fact is they have a choice to drink or not to drink. And one may say, well, it's an addiction. Well, even there, yes. But there are people who are addicted and have been addicted to things who have said, this is very bad. I can't continue like this. I've got to break this addiction. And they, they have done so. Um, and by the strength of the will, mo motivated by God's grace, supported by God's grace, they've done so. So in what way does it constitute a disease to have a certain weakness in that direction that can become an addiction where one feels a need for this and feels a need for it all the time and says, I can't live without this. Whereas there are those who've said, well, I can't live with it. Rather than saying, I can't live without it, they say, I can't live with this and I have to break this. Uh, remember Audie Murphy? Maybe. Buddy Murphy, American soldier, actually lied about his age, uh, got drafted for World War II, and uh, wound up winning the Congressional Medal of Honor. He, um, it's a quite an interesting story. Um, very young age. He was the youngest in, in his platoon, I think, but he, he was actually unanimously chosen as their leader by the men in the platoon. And... Um, he um, came back to the States, became an actor, uh, starred in a lot of Western movies, right? He was always the clean-cut, sharp, decent uh, cowboy, you know? Uh, the cowboy with the white hat, he always did the right thing, you know? Um, but uh, he came out of the military addicted. Uh, if he wasn't addicted when he came out of the military, he, he became addicted shortly thereafter, possibly because of medications he was taking for wounds that he received. I don't know. Somehow he became heavily addicted. And um, he chose, you know, saying, rather than say, I can't live without this, he decided, I can't live with this. I cannot live with this addiction. And so he actually uh, rented a hotel or motel room out in California 
and just locked himself away for a week, 10 days, whatever it was. Uh, and he would not, he would not give in. And he just went through all the, the withdrawal symptoms on his own and just toughed it out. But he came through and he was, he broke the addiction. He broke the power of the addiction. Can everybody do that? Certainly not everybody without help, you know, but you have to admire a man who can and they saw the necessity of doing it and did it because it was the right thing to do. Well, he, did, he certainly didn't see it as a disease. He saw it as a challenge that had to be overcome. And uh, uh, this is what he did. He died in a plane crash, ultimately, actually. Uh, fair, still fairly young. But he accomplished an enormous amount in a very short time. Grew up in absolute po poverty, in abject poverty, you know. So, uh, I remember, interesting case. I, I hope he saved his soul. I don't know the rest, anything about his, any spiritual life that he might have. Uh, but in any case, um, no, I mean, if somebody were to ask me, well, do you consider alcoholism as a disease? I'd say, no. I consider it a natural tendency to abuse alcohol and to the point where it, it becomes or can become an addiction. But that's where the question of the morality comes in. Will you allow that to happen? And if it does become an addiction, will you allow it to continue? Again, will you say, I cannot live without this, or will you say, I cannot live with this, and I must overcome this by the grace of God? Mm -hmm. Father, for someone who is uh, addicted to alcohol, some of our viewers wanted to know if you would recommend recourse to Matt Talbot of of Dublin, I believe the Nova Sordo has made him venerable or, or, or blessed, mm -hmm. perhaps. But um, some of our viewers wanted to know your thoughts on him, if you would recommend recourse to him. Well, I'd like to know a lot more about him. Some good souls have sent me information about him. And what, I, what I've gleaned about him is that he's a good example. And uh, that he was motivated by true faith, hope, and love for our Lord. And uh, a man who knew what alcohol addiction was and who knew the necessity of overcoming it by grace, and he did. And it set up a, a marvelous example for the Irish in Dublin. Um, so there's a, a reason why that name, above so many others, rises to the top, as it were, as a pretty shining example of what, uh, of what can be accomplished by the power of grace for those who are willing to cooperate with the grace yep. and not make excuses for yep. it. Okay. So yes, I, I would. I think people would do well to read the biography mm -hmm. of Matt Talbot. Okay, Father. Uh, moving on, uh, one of our viewers wanted to know if you would uh, mind explaining altar stones, uh, the need for them, their placement, and why the saints, why there are saints' relics in them. She also asked if it was important to know which particular relics are in the stones so as to invoke those particular saints. Mm -hmm. Well, the altar stone is actually the altar. I mean, one could have a, a grand uh, wooden altar, hand-carved, gilded statues of saints, um, and yet you remove the altar stone, you couldn't offer Mass on. But if you just had the altar stone alone, you could offer Mass on the altar stone. In fact, priests during World War II and World War I who were chaplains would carry the altar stone in their mask because they would have to wherever they went even even on the hood of a jeep they could offer mass 
if the altar stone was there, because the altar stone contained relics of two martyrs, at least two martyrs. Why? Because in the earliest days of the church, when the uh, martyrs were giving their lives publicly for uh, fidelity to Christ, their bodies would be taken and buried, uh, usually in the catacombs, possibly in Mausolea if they were from a well-to-do family, or Hippogea, but often in the catacombs. And um, in the catacombs, there were archisolio, a certain structure where often the mass would be offered. Or actually, there were marble slabs in which the marble, the relics of the martyrs would be placed, and the earliest masses would be offered over the relics of the martyrs. It was a Catholic practice in the earliest days that the, the, the first, the earliest masses offered were offered over the relics of the martyrs. We have a prime example of that in St. Peter himself. St. Peter's um, burial place up the Vatican Hill from the Circus of Nero uh, uh, was actually, or the Domitian, sometimes they say Domitian completed it, so some say the Circus of Domitian. St. Peter's burial place became a place of pilgrimage. And um, it was, well, there's a history behind that that we won't get into right now because they're complicated. If you want to come to Rome with me, I'll show you, <laughs> okay, uh, in the necropolis. Um, but in any case, um, and the, the martyred relics of St. Peter were buried there, and then the popes who came after him, Linus and Clatus and Clemens, Sisters, Cornelius, the ones we read about in the Mass, they were all buried around the uh, body of St. Peter, and uh, there was a kind of a structure which came to be known as the Trophy of Gaius, a priest of the middle of the second century who made a pilgrimage there, spoke of this, and he described this marvelous structure uh, that was built back up against the wall, which sealed off the area where St. Peter's body had been interred. And um, then the entire basilica, Constantine built the entire basilica of St. Peter's right over that spot, and he placed the high altar of, he placed the altar of the basilica directly over the spot where Peter was buried. And what this demonstrates is the Catholic understanding that the martyrs, the blood of the martyrs really was the seat of the church, as Tertullian said, and uh, that the Catholic Mass and the sacrifice of our Lord and the sacrifices of the martyrs really belong together. You know, there's a certain unity there. And a unity with the Church and its history, going back to the age of the early martyrs. Um, that's why when Paul VI came out with his new rules for the liturgy, and did away with the, the need for the altar stone and the relics, it was such a shocking thing that he did. It was as though he, he broke that, that continuous tradition of the church for all those centuries, back to the, rooted into the profession of faith of the martyrs who died for our Lord. And now, well, I mean, you take, you take the relics out of the, altar, and what do you have? You have a table. 
It's just a, a mensa. It's just a, a bald table. And that's what they have in the New Order. They have just a bald table there. Uh, it is not an altar. And uh, they don't require the altar stones to be used because they don't require the, the, uh, the relics of the martyrs to be used anymore. I told you about Our Lady Perpetual Help here in Saddamsville, suburb of Cincinnati, where the church was being closed down, and they wrenched the altar stones out of the altars and actually stacked them on the steps going down into the sacristy, so you're walking over the top of them, with the, with the martyrs' relics still in them. This is the contempt that the Novus Ordo shows for the martyrs, the church, Christ himself. Right? And uh, fortunately, we were able to rescue them, but not uh, before they had already been, uh, uh, shall we say, abused in this way yeah. for some time. So, um, but that altar stone uh, containing the, the altar, the relics, is, it's actually uh, hollowed out. There's, a, there's a, a hollowed out portion of the altar stone called the sepulchre. And the relics of the martyrs are placed in there solemnly and a part of the ceremony consecrating the altar and then they are sealed over with kind of a marble uh, disc and then they are mortared shut right as though the tomb was sealed okay and uh, you have to have that where mass is to be offered if you don't have that uh, you cannot offer mass um, except on a real altar with the relics of the martyrs traditionally mm. the new mass doesn't have the character of a real mass and they just offer it as a meal on a table but the true mass is offered over the relics of the martyrs to this day is, is, it, is it important to know which particular and that is not necessary to know i i'm sure in the records of the parish or the records of the diocese for example in the parish when, a, when the, <clears throat> the bishop were to come and to consecrate or dedicate the church or and bless the altar uh that notations would have been made of what relics were being placed in the sepulchre of the altars. And, uh, I mean, not all altars are solid stone, like marble. You can have altars like, such as ours in Immaculate Conception, <clears throat> which are one solid uh, slab of marble. And the whole top, the whole mensa, as they call it, is the altar stone because the relics are buried directly into that one solid uh, piece of stone and that rests is mortared onto other stones that actually rest upon a structure that goes into the earth um, so technically speaking the church could not only be dedicated it could be consecrated um, if you're in a, a catholic church and you see they have a stone altar, not wood, but a stone altar. They don't just have a, an altar, like a square altar, stone set into the wood, but the whole altar is the altar, right? mm. <laughs> because the relics are contained in this solid, mm. massive stone. And you look along the sides of the church, and you see six stone crosses embedded in the wall on each side. You're in a consecrated church. Uh, otherwise, you're in a, a dedicated church. Only, right? There are rules about that we won't get into now. But in any case, 
Um, <clears throat> but it all has to go back to that, that altar and centers around where the Holy Sacrifice is offered. And it is offered traditionally as Catholics, as a Catholic Mass over relics of the, of the, of the, of the martyrs. Even if we have rescued these altar stones and they're still intact, yeah. we don't have access to the records of what martyrs' relics were placed in there. Rarely did they write them on the underside of the altar stone. Very rarely. Uh, but as long as they are intact and the seal is unbroken, we know the martyr, martyrs' relics are there and they can be used as, as the altars. Wow. Um, we know what relics are in our altar here. Uh, our high altar has the relics of the two popes after St. Peter, St. Linus and St. Cletus. That's the main altar. <clears throat> the St. Joseph's altar has the relics of St. Clement, who was the third pope after St. Peter, and also St. Calixtus, who was the pope in the early 200s, who oversaw the catacombs, the burial of the martyrs. Mm -hmm. And in the um, Blessed Mother's altar here, we have the relics of St. Philomena, and St. Maria Goretti, virgin martyrs separated by centuries, right? Mm. Ancient saint, modern saint, as it were, modern times, but united there in the altar of our Blessed Mother. So. Very good. That's beautiful, Father. It's fascinating. Thank you. Um, okay, just a couple more, maybe, Father, if we get through these rather quickly. Uh, why do traditional Catholics use the term charity instead of love? Because love is so abused, it doesn't mean anything in particular. I mean, uh, love often just can, can do, uh, signifies, I, I like you, you know, or you make me happy, or whatever, you know, and uh, charity has a very specific meaning. It is a, a love that is motivated ultimately by a love for God in particular, a love that is motivated by a love for God, we would call charity, and that is why in the sacred scriptures, they have the word caritas, and uh, that actually, um, you know, carries the notion even of the agape, you know, or the, uh, uh, well, it, it carries a, the notion of a pure love. Even the Greeks had four different words, four very distinct words for the different kinds of attraction associated with just the one word love in English, okay? And uh, so um, the, the word just as sort of like happy, you know, like in the Novus Ordo they translate the Beatitudes. Instead of saying blessed are the pure of heart for they shall see God, they say happy are the pure of heart. They, instead of saying blessed are those who mourn, uh, they say, happy are those who mourn, right? <laughs> and uh, the word happiness, what does it mean now, you know? Uh, the same with love. It, it doesn't convey the same sense. And so uh, traditional Catholics follow the, um, what they call the Douay Remus uh, translation, and they continue to use the word charity because it, it is derived directly from the Latin word caritas and has a specific meaning. Yeah. as a pure, a pure spiritual love. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
Uh, Father, is it uh, required, this viewer asks, for a Catholic employee to preach the Catholic faith to their non-Catholic bosses and, and co-workers and let them know that they are in error? Well, it is required of anyone out of charity to try to bring them to faith. I mean, love, we're required to love our neighbor uh, with a supernatural love, charity. And that means we are required to will their good. And the greatest good we can will them is uh, faith, hope, and charity, and everlasting life. So we're required to want that for everyone. Uh, God himself wants that for everyone. And he requires that we do too. Um, but, you know, the obligation to express that to others often is, uh, it depends upon what we can do or say that will actually make things better and will help them. Um, so we have to use the first of the cardinal virtues, prudence. Uh, yes, we need fortitude to express, express our faith sometimes. And um, justice, we need to speak up in, in, in justice to defend if it's something is being attacked uh, unjustly. But even above those, there is prudence, which tells us um, do what is expected, that you can reasonably expect to accomplish some good. Don't make things worse. So, yes, if, if we have an employer or uh, someone else we have a certain bond with, to and responsibility for, uh, then we have an obligation to share our faith uh, and our hope and our love for God with them and try to inspire it in them and bring them to, to true faith and a hope and, and love for God. But if, if we can't think of a single thing to say or do that we can reasonably expect will produce good results and might well um, uh, make things worse by provoking blasphemy, um, for a guy, angry, angry blasphemy, then prudence tells us, don't do it. The, 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 the second rule of prudence is, if you can make things better, if you can actually help someone by saying or doing something edifying and um, beneficial to them, then yes, by all means, there's an obligation to do that. That's the second rule. The first rule of prudence is, whatever you do, or say, don't make things worse, okay? Don't do harm. And if your effort to um, do them good is uh, known to you as probably not a very good idea and that it's going to actually provoke an adverse reaction, which uh, could produce blasphemy, um, mockery of holy things, and so on, then uh, the first rule of prudence says, don't do that. Uh, pray for them, uh, always. Pray that God will give them the grace to be receptive. Pray that God will give you the grace to know what you can do and say that will help them. Uh, but you need both graces. You may uh, have ideas about what you can do or say to help them, but they need the internal graces to enable them to receive what you're doing. Um, you know, even physically, Tom, uh, you know, those in the medical field know that you can give uh, certain nutrition and medication to uh, a person who's sick, but if the person is not able to tolerate it, it could kill them, right? So you, you just have to be careful 
um, not to give them something that in itself might seem healthful, but for that particular individual, because of their predisposition or weakness, they might not be able to tolerate, you know. Yeah. You try to get them healthy enough so that they can, and that's where prayer, prayer comes in. They need internal graces to, uh, to enable them to benefit from the good example that you said. Good. Okay, uh, last viewer question we had tonight, Father. Um, one of our viewers wanted to know if you personally believe that Archbishop Lefebvre is a saint, and if you thought it would be appropriate for traditional Catholics to venerate Archbishop Lefebvre and, and offer uh, prayers to him. Uh, do I think he's a saint in the sense, do I think he was canonized? No. Would I want him to be canonized by the Novus Ordo? No. Would he want to be canonized by the Novus Ordo? No. He absolutely rejected the Novus Ordo, right? Um, so um, that answer is no. <laughs> uh, do I think he is in heaven right now? I do believe so. Um, just because I have such a confidence based upon what I do know of him, and I'm no expert, uh, you know, I'm, I'm no expert on Archbishop of Fed, but what I do know of him is um, speaks very well for him. I believe he had a very, very uh, powerful faith and uh, invincible hope and indomitable charity. Although I, I, I've seen, I, I saw that he could. Um, um, what should I say, become um, frustrated, irritated, but always with things that involve the honor and glory of God, right? I mean, our Lord himself nodded the whips and drove the money changers out of the temple. And there's no doubt in my mind that Archbishop of Fenwick would be even thoroughly capable of that, right? Um, <clears throat> in very powerful hands, right? And if he graduated by the lapels, as he did one, no, was sort of priest one day. Uh, you knew that you were in the grip of someone very powerful. Uh, but of course, more powerful in his hands was his faith and his love for our Lord. Um, as his motto was, we have believed unto charity, right? And um, so, um, I do believe Archbishop Lefebvre is in heaven. I believe he had the benefit of all the sacraments, uh, of course. Uh, um, and uh, Viaticum, perhaps more than once, uh, uh, as he was, his disease, the cancer was progressively taking his life, and uh, extreme unction, of course, and the apostolic benediction, and so on. And so, I don't, from a human point of view, I, I don't doubt that he that he breathed forth his soul to God uh, in the state of grace, and uh, I believe that he would have offered all of his sufferings, and his sufferings were considerable. Uh, he had to act so often and continually against his own temperament, which was, well, he was raised in the Vatican diplomatic corps. He was kind of uh, commissioned by the Vatican itself as a diplomat. And I think that was his, uh, his natural bent, diplomacy, to try to find a way to work things out. Uh, such that, you know, that would be uh, safeguard the integrity of conscience. Um, and I think it was a cross for him, uh, but it was that he had to take a stand adamantly, as he did, and uh, appear to be at odds with the entire 
church, but it was actually the, the Novus Ordo uh, that was trying to crush him. But they, they could not crush him because his first allegiance was always to our Lord. And um, I think it was a very, very heavy cross and a source of great suffering to him. I think he offered that all up for the church. And uh, I, I do believe that he expiated um, sins. I, I, I'd like to think that he went straight to heaven, but I, you know, obviously I can't canonize him. If I tried, he would laugh <laughs> at the very prospect of someone like me, you know, presuming to canonize him. So I do pray for him and I offer mass for him. We have his birthday coming up on November 9th, 29th. And I always offer Mass for him on that day. Actually, the day after, because that's also a birthday to a dear relative of mine. Uh, so, um, or, or a, a significant date. So I, I do uh, usually offer the Mass for Monsignor Lefebvre on November 30th, um, St. Andrew's Feast Day, I believe, right? Yep. Yes. And, um, but also on his date of death as well, right? The Annunciation of Our Lady. So, um, so um, I do believe he, he personally, I believe that he is a saint in heaven. Would it be wrong to venerate him? Yes, insofar as the church itself has the power to name the venerable, the blessed, the servants of God, of course, and the saints in heaven, and to canonize, and uh, I mean, I, in terms of one of the faithful saying, well, I believe I can ask Archbishop Lefebvre to help me if he's in heaven, but that's always conditional. But wherever he is, I mean, even the souls in purgatory can, can help us, we, as, we, as we know, or it's piously believed that they can, so uh, uh, one could appeal to him. I mean, the question is, did he save his soul? It's another question. Is he now in heaven? Another question, mm -hmm. but one can ask for his help because I'm quite certain that he gave his life in the in the state of grace. Yeah. Um, as I say, it would be a pious belief of mine that he is now in heaven. Okay, very good. Well, thank you for all that, Father. Those were um, all the viewer questions I had. I know that took up a bit more time than uh, we had. Maybe anticipated, but thanks for um, getting through all of that. Did you, um, well, before we end, Father, did you have any current events or anything that you wanted to mention? Well, uh, there were some current events, but I'm afraid they would probably take, take a little while here. Okay. And, uh, we're trying to, as it were, turn over a new leaf here. Yeah. Um, so. Um, well, Father, I know our viewers are very appreciative to uh, have a lot of their, so many of their questions answered and have such thorough traditional Catholic answers to mm -hmm. these uh, very very uh, serious question. So, yeah. Well, I, I hope they're of help. You know, Tom, there's so much happening in the church, in the Novosola Church with Francis, and, um, you know, rumors about him going to uh, take the, the residence and the salary away from Cardinal Burke, mm -hmm. because he considers him a personal enemy. Uh, Francis being too sick to go to the climate conference now, um, although that for him is like a major worshipful event. <laughs> that he's too sick to go, um, you know, I, I, I do pray for him too, you know. I pray for his conversion, most of all. I want him to convert, I want him to save his soul, and I want him to uh, um, repudiate the evil that has been done by him and in his name. And, um, and uh, there's so much evil going on in our country right now, too. Um, 
Uh, have we talked about these things here? Yes, we do, as you know. But I think the, the most important programs, the programs like tonight, where we're actually addressing questions that are really not addressed most anywhere else. And we have practical questions that people write in to ask about. So there are many, many places one can go for information about what's happening with the, you know, the status of the, the elections in Georgia in 2020 and January 6th. Pray for all the January 26 prisoners, too, of course, and so on. There's, there are sites with much information on that. We will talk about that here insofar as it affects the Catholic faith and Catholic morality. Uh, but there's a plethora of sources to find out the information on all of those things. Uh, but uh, there are a limited number of uh, venues where people actually talk about these matters of, uh, of faith, uh, especially with regard to the traditional Catholic faith, how it views these things. So I, I consider these questions to be every bit as important, not more important. Yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for that, Father. Thank you for uh, allowing me to be a part of that. Oh, well, certainly, Tom. Thanks for being a part of it. That's <laughs> my pleasure. Uh, thank you to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.